Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter audio cast. I am your host, Dr. M, and this week is issue number 27 of volume 12, which corresponds with the week of June 20, 2022. This is COVID episode update 64. And in specific, we're going to be looking at quick hits, impaired immune responses, and more issues related to boosters. So in this update, number 64, we note that North Carolina, like the rest of the country, is seeing a small COVID wave, but life is still moving along like pre-pandemic days and appears that it will continue to do so for quite some time. We're seeing very limited COVID disease in kids in Salisbury Pediatrics for many weeks now and no MIS cases that I know of. North Carolina in general is down to 4% of admitted patients needing a ventilator and 10% needing an ICU bed for COVID. The seven-day moving average of cases for the U.S. in recent weeks has plateaued at around 100,000 and dropping. The risk of death remains the same at 0.000033 once vaccinated with a two-dose series or survive natural infection. The song of the week is Dreamer by Ozzy Osbourne. It's a very good one. I encourage you to listen to it. Okay. So in update number 64, we note that Omicron, U.S. strains now currently, as of June 4th data, show a makeup of BA.2 at 14%, BA.4 at 8%, BA.5 at 13%, and BA 2.12.1 at 64%. This current COVID wave is in line with volumes from wave three, which was the Delta wave back last fall. Death and hospitalizations are not tracking with infectious volume at, the time, at all anymore. We remain in a place of limited concern now that the morbidity is far below Delta and earlier strains when everyone was SARS to immune naive. BA.4 and 0.5, which are going up in volume, are not showing any early signs of increased disease morbidity. This mirrors other countries that have been battling these strains for a longer period of time than us, including South Africa and Europe. The infectiousness or the r naught of this current strain is roughly in the range of measles, which is very, very, very fast. This statement that I'm about to make is my complete opinion based on the history of this pandemic and what's been going on. What is the current state of affairs? We have a highly contagious and mutational SARS-2 virus that is present in the United States. The mutations usually occur overseas in vaccine-naive areas. The landscape here has changed as most of us have some immunity as vaccine-induced, viral-induced, or a hybrid combination. That reality has dramatically reduced the death and hospitalization rate so that my colleagues in the ICU feel little to no stress anymore from COVID despite relatively high case volume compared to other waves except number four. Thank God for this change, as many are burned out or on their way there from two years of providing constant care in the ICUs. 
The current vaccines are not very useful for illness prevention, as witnessed by many people that I know that have had four doses of the mRNA vaccines, the most recent being within the last 60 days, and are still getting symptomatic illness requiring significant time to feel better. The data also supports the witness reality as boosters are offering less than 50% protection against symptomatic disease and waning antibodies within 60 days for most people. The current vaccines and prior natural disease are very, very reliable for preventing hospitalization and death as witnessed in the hospital data and T-cell and B-cell memory are fully functional for almost everyone. Risk stratification remains the key to boosting moving forward, as we have heard from thought leaders, including Paul Offit and Monica Gandhi in recent weeks. There has been very, very poor national uptake of boosters, with only a third of eligible adults getting one at 100 million people. This is likely based on the poor effectiveness at preventing illness and the science showing that the primary series is protecting against death at a very, very high rate, despite waning antibodies. The Omicron variants are infecting within three days on average, leaving little time for the T-cells and the B-cells to respond fast enough to prevent symptomatic disease, but are fully protective for immunocompetent people against severe disease. Let me state that again. The Omicron variants are infecting within three days on average, leaving little time for the T-cells and B-cells to respond fast enough to prevent symptomatic disease, but are fully protective for immunocompetent people against severe disease. The memory T and B-cells are able to ramp up with earlier waves of disease when individuals had no immunity or vaccine response. This is great news as this prevents most, if not all, severe disease in immunologically solvent people. Immunologically, the antibodies need to be circulating in volume to prevent symptomatic disease. Thus, the only option for reasonable symptomatic disease prevention is vaccination every two to five months. Ugh, that sounds ridiculous. And it is. Thus, for me, it makes no sense and thankfully is not recommended right now, nor should it be. We also now have a drug, Paxlovid, which appears to be quite useful, especially in those individuals with risk. It's a decent medicine antiviral that blocks a protease enzyme called MPRO, which is a viral enzyme that plays an essential role in viral replication by cleaving the two viral polyproteins, reducing replication, slowing infections, allowing the immune system to catch up and win. In the actual newsletter at SalisburyPediatrics.com, the link to a diagram of the drug's action is available if you want to look. So let's put this all together. We have a completely new situation that begs a major question that must be answered moving forward. Why are we pushing boosters for all adults between 12 years of age and 30 that are best minimally effective for a few months in a population that's very, very, very low risk at this point based on a priori vaccine and disease history. We have limited long-term data on four and counting mRNA vaccines in teenagers and young children. I may not be towing the party line here, but I'm finding it hard to want to boost my own children who have been vaccinated and also had natural Omicron this year with no problems. The big wild card remains a mutation in this variant set that becomes more deadly. All bets are off if this occurs. The good news is that based on history, we will have some warning as these events are and have occurred overseas to date first.
Will boosters mitigate the situation any more than natural infection? The current data sets say no, as natural infection provides more wide-ranging SARS-2 epitope spread coverage and better antibody responses based on data reviewed in this newsletter to date. My thoughts are these. One, I am pro-vaccine for all individuals that are are disease-naive and have not yet received a vaccine. Two, we are in a much better place than we were ever in this pandemic from a poor outcome perspective. Three, we need a newer vaccine set that is targeted to the Omicron variants that actually reduces transmission significantly and lasts longer than a few months. Four, we need a national narrative around immune solvency beginning with lifestyle decisions that are hurting immune function, as discussed many times in this newsletter, to help reduce infectious burdens and morbidity in general. Five, we need to accept that people are very, very skeptical about the boosters. And they frankly have good reason to be so, based on the data that's in effect right now and the fact that illness while being boosted multiple times, is still occurring at high volumes. We need more data to hone these opinions over time. And, frankly, we just have opinions as the data emerges. And people have their own opinions based on what they see in the data and what we understand. So, we need to accept this reality and allow people to be skeptical while continuing to provide the best quality data to them to help them make the best decisions. This is not a time for draconian measures and draconian arm twisting related to boosters. Just my opinions. Okay, let's go on to quick hits. Number one, from the United Kingdom, we have research published in Science noting the Omicron or Pango lineage B.1.1.529 variant of SARS-CoV-2 carries multiple spike mutations with high transmissibility and partial neutralizing antibody escape. Vaccinated individuals show protection from severe disease, often attributed to primed cellular immunity. We investigated T and B cell immunity against B.1.1.529 and triple mRNA vaccinated healthcare workers with different SARS-CoV-2 infection histories. B and T cell immunity against previous variants of concern was enhanced in triple vaccinated individuals but magnitude of T and B cell responses against B.1.1.529 spike protein was reduced. Immune imprinting by infection with the earlier B.1.1.7 alpha variant resulted in less durable binding antibody against B.1.1.529. Previously infection-naive healthcare workers who became infected during the B.1.1.529 wave showed enhanced immunity against earlier variants but reduced neutralizing antibody potency and T-cell responses against B.1.1.259 itself. Previous Wuhan HU1 infection abrogated T-cell recognition and any enhanced cross-reactive neutralizing immunity on infection with B.1.1.529. This comes to us from Reynolds et al. in the journal Science. So this is a mess. In this study, if you were a healthcare worker and had been infected with an earlier SARS-2 strain and were triple vaccinated with an mRNA vaccine and then you got ill with Gen 1 Omicron, your outcome from an immune perspective against future Omicron variants was reduced. The reality that a person infected with the first Wuhan strain and then was triple vaccinated would end up with reduced and frankly impaired immunity against Omicron and future variants is very disturbing. 
This Omicron variant has mutated in a way that has allowed it to mess with our immune system's response to it, leaving us a little less prepared going forward. It's a little trickster. The immune system and this virus continue to marvel in good and bad ways. Section 2 of this newsletter slash audio cast has an entire discussion from the Science Journal article as it is very, very interesting. Quick hit number two. A similar study was published in the journal Lancet Infectious Diseases. This week, noting from Sweden this time that individuals with triple vaccination status and previous SARS-2 infection had weaker immune responses to Omicron compared to their vaccinated and not previously infected compatriots. This comes to us from Blom et al. in the Lancet Infectious Diseases. Number three, from a study in JAMA, by Edlo et al. 2022, we find the cohort included 7,700 live births to SARS-CoV-2 positive mothers with mean maternal age of 33 years. Preterm delivery was more likely among exposed mothers at a rate of 14.4% versus 8.7%. Maternal SARS-CoV-2 positivity during pregnancy was associated with greater rate of neurodevelopmental diagnoses in unadjusted models, as well as those adjusted for race, ethnicity, insurance status, offspring sex, maternal age, and preterm status. Third trimester infection was associated with effects of larger magnitude. This data will need to be verified in future studies. However, it is concerning that the viruses that we know in general, like Zika and others, like herpes, can cause trouble during pregnancy. And it's possible that SARS-2 should be no exception here as well. The bottom line is for all of us to keep an eye on children born to SARS-2 positive mothers for signs of delay. And when identified, early child intervention with therapies are key. Four, mRNA vaccines, with Moderna being more associated, are showing myocarditis issues in teenagers and young men up to 39 years of age. This has to be part of the boosting calculus. More studies needed to show which causes more myocarditis now, boosters or natural disease, post-primary vaccine series, or natural primary infection. We need more data. Five, Novavax is finally getting a review by the FDA for emergency use, which would be welcome news for those at risk for bad outcomes based on disease or age and refuse to take the mRNA vaccines or are unwilling to get many boosters over time because of the mRNA type. Novavax vaccine is a direct injection of that spike protein itself along with an adjuvant, a separate ingredient that excites the immune system to cause a response against the protein structure. This is the same type of vaccine style that we've been using for many, many, many years as the annual influenza vaccine. It is the only one currently in production in the U.S. that is not a novel delivery method like mRNA or adenoviral vectors. The vaccine's data shows that it is safe and effective. The only issue is a signal regarding myocarditis in young men and teenage boys that appeared to be greater than the mRNA issues noted over the last two years. The issues will be looked at over the next months to a year. However, these risks are easily reduced by giving this vaccine to the at-risk population, which is mostly not the teenagers and young men. Six, my friends at the pollution detectives have been looking at indoor air quality and cognitive effects for years. Now we see new interest in air quality related to infectious disease spread. From JAMA, Dowell et al. 2022 noted, improving air quality has the potential to reduce not only infections with SARS-CoV-2, but also infections with other respiratory viruses and bacteria. 
reactive airways disease, example asthma, triggered by antigens, pulmonary and cardiovascular injury from inhalation of harmful respiratory particulates, i.e. wildfires and smog, and toxicity from inhalation of volatile organic compounds. A once in many decades opportunity now exists to make sustained improvements to public and private indoor air quality, reduce COVID-19 risk, and improve school workplace and consumer health and safety. Several methods are readily available to assess if improvements are working. Carbon dioxide monitors can provide insight on how well an occupied space is ventilated. Airflow measurement devices and tracer gas tests can directly examine ventilation rates. Aerosol sensors can determine the effectiveness of filtration systems. So frankly, for me, this is a great opportunity to repurpose wasteful government spending to a plan of action and effect for the health of our children. Number seven, vaccines for young kids. Pfizer's two-dose series is 28% effective in preventing symptomatic disease in children aged six months to five years versus 37% for Moderna. This comes to us from the New York Times coronavirus briefing for the week of 615. In a word, for me, this is not very effective in preventing symptomatic illness. The kicker is for those at risk for a very rare but bad outcome, it works great. The hard part is we have no idea who these exceedingly rare kids are. According to the CDC, 442 children have perished to date with COVID as a diagnosis between the ages of zero and four. But were those direct COVID deaths or associations? That data, as far as I'm concerned, has not teased that out. Therefore, I cannot answer that. Overall, it's still a small number unless it is your child. Unfortunately, they do not risk stratify to know if there is a group, a subgroup, that absolutely should be vaccinated. Most children that are older have natural immunity based on the statistics from the waves to date. Influenza, by comparison, kills less than 100 young children less than five years of age annually, making COVID more deadly by statistics, apparently. Thus, parents will have to weigh this data very carefully when deciding what to do. The AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, and the CDC Center for Disease Control absolutely recommend the vaccines for all children over six months of age. Number eight, a very interesting study reports findings of 128 prospectively studied SARS-CoV-2 positive patients. Cognitive and olfaction tests were reported and assessed at 2, 4, 12 months post-diagnosis. Olfaction is smelling, cognitive thinking. Lung function, physical and mental health were assessed at two months post-diagnosis. Blood cytokines, their immune cells, neurobiomarkers, and kynurine pathway metabolites were measured at 2, 4, 8, and 12 months. Mild to moderate cognitive impairment was present in 16, 23, 26% of these patients at 2, 4, and 12 months post-diagnosis, respectively. Overall cognitive performance mildly but significantly declined. Cognitive impairment was more common in those with anosmia, but only at two months. Anosmia is absence of sense of smell. Kynurin pathway metabolites quinolinic acid, 3-hydroxyanthralinic acid, and kynurinine were significantly associated with cognitive decline. The kynurin pathway as a unique biomarker, offers a potential therapeutic target for COVID-19-related cognitive impairment. 
This comes to us from Sizik, spelled C-Y-S-I-Q-U-E et al. 2022 and MedRxIV. This is interesting from the perspective that having biochemical pathways identified as part of or players in dysfunction can lead to interventions to resolve brain fog and cognitive decline. There is potential here for food or nutraceuticals to help fix some of these pathways if possible. It's food for thought, things to look into, potential treatment options. Number nine, myocarditis is roughly two per 100,000 person days according to a new analysis in The Lancet by Wong et al., 2022. It is the most common after the second dose of an mRNA vaccine in young men, age 18 to 25. Other studies to date have shown that myocarditis was more common following natural infection. That leads me to believe that the SARS-2 spike protein is the causative trigger and a problem for all young men. Risk leans towards getting the vaccine series if unvaccinated and never infected. Boosters remain an unknown for risk when comparing other previously infected or vaccinated states. Number 10, ivermectin, safe but minimally useful, says a study from Duke researcher Susanna Nagy, Nagy et al. 2022 in MedRxIV. This is not surprising. Ivermectin has been used for over five decades with lots of safety data. Safety was never the question. This was a political theater about the whole issue regarding ivermectin safety. Bit of a mess. The reality is it probably never worked, but the fact that it was demonized says a whole lot more about politics and our, our CDC folks than it does say about the drug and its safety. But those days are over. No sense crying over spilt milk. Section two. This is some tricky stuff. So bear with me if you want to hear this stuff. Fast forward through this if you don't. Section two is a discussion from one of the journal articles that really gives some interesting pathophysiology. At this stage in the pandemic, and I'm reading this from the article, there is a view that the global spread of Omicron B.1.1.529 through its association with a relatively mild disease phenotype and possibly a potential to boost vaccine immunity may herald the transition into a new endemic relationship. The case for vaccine-mediated immune preconditioning as key mediator of the attenuated phenotype is complex. While Functional neutralization by vaccine prime sera is considerably blunted against Omicron B.1.1.529. Three-dose vaccination efficacy against symptomatic disease holds up in 50-70%. to It has been proposed that immune protection may be supported by maintenance of relatively high T-cell response frequencies to viral epitopes unperturbed by loss of antibody epitopes. A rationale for this T-cell media protection comes from animal models showing that directly uh, they have the ability of SARS-CoV-2-specific T-cells to curtail lung viral loads. This raised two key questions with respect to the understanding and management of this wave. Considering the very diverse patterns of antiviral immunity shown by ourselves and others to be determined by differential immune imprinting, how would differences in antigen exposure through infection and vaccination alter immune responses against Omicron at the level of binding antibody and neutralizing antibody and T-cell responses? Is the immune response following infection during Omicron wave primed and fully available to support protective immunity? 
We examined the immunity to Omicron in a longitudinal healthcare worker cohort considering cross-reactive immunity primed by the varied spike exposures of three-dose vaccination with or without hybrid immunity from any of the Wuhan HU1 alpha strain or the B.167.2 Delta infection waves and then the additive effect of the actual infection during the B.1.1.529 first Omicron wave. In the first part of this paper, we report patterns of response in differentially imprinted triple vaccinated healthcare workers. In second part of the paper, we consider immune responses in those who went on to suffer infection during the B.1.1.529 infection were despite, waived despite triple vaccination. There were several unexpected findings. While it is known that cross-reactive antibody recognition is compromised by the mutations in B.1.1.529 Omicron, it was surprising that this was so profoundly exacerbated by differential imprinting in those who had prior infection with either the alpha strain or Wuhan HU1 first strain. This adds an important dimension to the global control of Omicron in light of the impact alpha has had on the global pandemic. By May of 2021, Alpha had accounted for 60% of all cases across 149 countries. That previous SARS-CoV-2 infection history can imprint such a profound negative impact on subsequent protective immunity is an unexpected consequence of COVID-19. While the notion that generally hybrid priming by infection and vaccination enhances immunity is widely agreed. Imprinted patterns such as a specific combination of vaccination with infection during the first ancestral Wuhan HU1 wave followed by the Omicron wave requires an additional term, hybrid immune dampening. Molecular characterization of the precise mechanism underpinning repertoire shaping from a combination of Wuhan H1 or alpha strain and triple vaccination using ancestral Wuhan HU1 sequences impacting immune responses to subsequent variants of concern will require detailed analysis of differential immune response repertoires and their structural responses and consequences. The impact of differential imprinting was seen just as profoundly in T-cell recognition of Omicron, which was not recognized by T-cells for many triple vaccinated healthcare workers who were initially infected during the Wuhan HU1 wave and then reinfected during the Omicron wave. Importantly, Omicron infection in triple vaccinated previously uninfected individuals could indeed boost antibody T-cell responses against other variants of concern. Responses to itself were, though, reduced. This relatively poor immunogenicity against itself may explain the frequent Omicron reinfections with short time intervals between infections and proving a novel feature in this wave. It also concurs with observations that the mRNA vaccination carrying Omicron spike sequence offers no protective advantage. Initial studies using acute serum samples following Omicron infection had indicated poor immunogenicity and a tendency to elicit only Omicron-specific responses in the unvaccinated broader responses of those imprinted following COVID-19 vaccination, including unexpected patterns of combination that appeared to ablate neutralizing responses to previously seen variants of concern. Our T-cell analysis, which depended on processing of immunodominant epitopes from whole antigens, revealed a more profound deficit than others. 
Studies in which T-cell responses of vaccinees against spike peptide megapools are screened show that while there may be a 20% drop in response due to lost epitopes across the entire sequence, most of the responses maintained, albeit with a significant minority showing a completely ablated CD8 response to Omicron peptide pools. Other studies show that around a fifth of responders to peptide panels have 50 to 70% drop in T-cell response. Our approach was to evaluate T-cell recognition using the dual approach of mapped epitope pools spanning the mutated regions and also whole naturally processed antigen. We found the greatest impairment of T-cell recognition when looking at the epitope recognition after processing a whole antigen. Naturally processed epitopes from uptake of whole antigen would generally be considered more representative of real-life situation and nearer to the HLA ligandome studies than synthetic megapools of several hundred overlapping peptides, which have the potential to drown out physiologic responses, patterns under the noise responses of cryptic epitopes that may not feature in real-life natural responses. That is, megapool approaches can, by their nature, underestimate the extent of response ablation. The natural HLA ligandome of peptides shown to be elicited by natural processing and HLA-2 presentation only partially overlaps epitopes mapped from overlapping synthetic peptide panels. Our immunization of mice with B.1.1.529 mutant epitopes confirm that the de novo T-cell response repertoire can be elicited, but this is not necessarily the same as that generated during live infection. In summary, these studies have shown that high global prevalence of Omicron infections and reinfections likely reflects considerable subversion of immune recognition at both the B and T cell antibody bonding and neutralizing antibody level, although with considerable differential modulation through immune imprinting. Some imprinted combinations, such as infection during Wuhan 1, and Omicron waves confer particularly impaired responses. So again, this is tricky. If we are noting now that people who have had previous variants in the beginning, whether it's alpha or the Wuhan strain, then get vaccinated and then get Omicron and have a worse antibody response and worse prolonged immune response, that's an issue. What does that do to the next infectious phase? What are we looking at? Boy, oh boy, do we have more to study here. Omicron, COVID, SARS-2, whatever you want to call this little trickster, is a gift that keeps on giving when it comes to science and the pain that keeps on giving when it comes to living. All right, folks, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed coronavirus update number 64, with co- which corresponds to volume 12, letter number 27 in the Salisbury Pediatric Associate newsletter, newsletter audio cast archives. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter audio cast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or health care professional. It is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This newsletter does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Take care.